Podcastle, episode 302, for March 13th, 2014. Feed Me the Bones of Our Saints, by Alex Daly McFarlane, rated R. Contains violence and revolution, not at all glamorized. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm LaShawn Wanick, and this is my very first intro. It's been a blast being associate editor here. I like what Dave and Anna have done with the place. The curtains on the dungeon walls, very nice touch. A little about me. I'm a writer, married, with a nine-year-old son, currently living with my in-laws, though by the time this drops, my in-laws would have moved to a place of their own. They lived with us for three and a half years. That's a long time. People often said to me, I can never do that with my in-laws. I guess I never had that much of a problem with it. For all the times they drove me crazy, they were also very loving and very helpful. My mother-in-law cooked us meals on weeknights, and my father-in-law helped around the house. And both were a strong presence in my son's life. That gives me the most joy, that my son was able to grow up knowing his grandparents and all the wisdom they possess. It's a precious thing, always having access to the past. When you don't have that, you feel it immensely. This week's story deals with that. It also has foxes and revenge, which is cool too. Prodcastle is very proud to present Feed Me the Bones of Our Saints by Alex Dally McFarlane. Alex's stories have appeared in Beneath Steesless Skies, Clark's World, and Shimmer. She is the editor of two anthologies, Aliens, Recent Encounters in 2013, and The Mammoth Book of SF Stories by Women, forthcoming in late 2014. Feed Me the Bones of Our Saints originally appeared in Strange Horizons. Our reader is Elise Krolik. You can hear her on our sister podcast, Escape Pod, reading E. Lily Yu's Lost with Chalk Diagrams. This is her first time reading for Podcastle. What does the fox say? Let's find out. Enjoy the story. Feed Me the Bones of Our Saints by Alex Daly McFarlane Jump up! Take arms! Bear teeth! We fight for these sands! Sink iron knives and white teeth into their scented flesh, their soft city flesh, those stealers of our homes. This is our city now, this desert with its winds that scour our cheeks, its dunes that join us in song, its rare springs that we lap at so gently. We once gulped rivers of rubies and pearls. Now they do, and we will never be able to claim them back. We will not let them take this final city of air and graveyards from us. Jump up! We fight for these sands with everything we have, and sometimes we forget the feel of a sister's shoulder beneath our heads. We've been so long without sleep. But today we'll be remembered for more than this. Today we retrieve the bodies of our saints. Nashir and Ari the courageous. Nashir and Ari the fierce. Nashir and Ari the kind. We write their names on every rock we pass, because we fear that one day we will all be killed, and then who will tell their stories? We imagine a foxless woman, hundreds of years from now, 
deciphering the desert's rocks and holding them close to her heart like a newborn child and kit. It pains us to imagine a future where the suns cross and no child and kit are born onto the hot sands. No other people are born like us. We buried Nishir and Ari only fifty years ago, when we still numbered in the hundreds, when we still inhabited cities and slept under ceilings of scuffed gold. Jump up! We send our bravest, brightest daughters for this most sacred task. Jerish and Iskri first perform the dawn morning, barking ten times into the wind the names of our most recently lost sisters. We cook their breakfast, a feast, mice and snakes in neat rows, roasted cactus flesh, crushed agari petals, and rare kurik stamens. They take small bites, and then Jeresh holds out the plates to the rest of us, smiling. Eat, sisters. We must all be strong. Iskri licks her dye whirled tail as we share the food. We help them prepare. Fifty years ago, we still hung so much silver from our ears that the flesh stretched, hanging around our shoulders, and we still dusted our faces with the powder of sapphires. Going into battle, we used to gild our nails and claws and fit ourselves with mail that shone like small suns, like our mother's. Now we anoint Jerish and Iskri with shattered knives. We bind the triangles to their foreheads with leather, and the jagged edges draw small beads of red. For each drop of their blood, we think, may a thousand fall from our enemies. One by one, we embrace them. Dutash holds Jeresh last and whispers, Stay safe, stay safe. I will dream of you every night. Bring me back dates if they still grow there. I will, Jeresh whispers against Dutash's lips, holding her lover close. I will, I will. Iskri and Towney inhale each other's scents, snout to snout, to carry close to their hearts. And then Jerish and Iskri walk into the desert, woman and fox, towards bold Barsim, the city whose walls threw themselves to the ground when we were forced out. Few of us remember our city's glory. Mere villages, our enemies say, but we were never so numerous, never capable of filling each city with thousands upon thousands. What need did we have of numbers when our cities were so beautiful? We know, Onashek, how could we not? We held on to it the longest, Onashek of cinnamon, carved into such beautiful houses. Even when crowded with refugees, it failed to lose all its luster beneath their detritus. It made the sweetest fires. Its smoke scented the tears that covered our faces as we fled. We know Irafos of our well-scribed stones. We launch rare raids into its remains, pillaging the stones that are covered in our stories. In the script our enemies call crude, simple. A child masters it so quickly, they say, Surely it is only a plaything, like scribbles of the suns. We only want our human sisters to learn quickly. They need to fight. It is a remnant of our luxury that we also want them to write, just as we make dangerous journeys to the places where indigo grows, so that our fox sisters can harvest leaves and dye their tails with their traditional shapes, denoting histories. We know Barsim of the green sarcophagus, where Nashir and Ari lie under a heavy lid. Our oldest sisters tell of the sarcophagus's unforgettable beauty. The way to Barsim is long and dry, 
But Juresh and Iskri are used to hardship. They walk together, barking and singing in poor harmony, chasing lizards, seizing animals that emerge at night. The stars point a path from oasis to oasis so that they can fill their leather water bags and with careful rationing keep their tongues wet. They find rocks covered in our human script, and Juresh stops to read out every story. Young as she is, she has heard only a few of them. Once we knew more stories than there were stars to follow and admire at night. We wrote them in the desert for fun. What we have lost since that time is immeasurable. Juresh and Iskri cross the desert, walking the dotted line on Juresh's map, until they reach the Triangle of Barsim. They almost miss it. The sands have swallowed the city's remains, so that Barsim is only a strange pattern of small rises in the ground. Juresh, tired and thirsting, walks blindly among them, stepping on and off the fallen walls. It is only because of Iskri, who never tires of digging for lizards, that she doesn't walk onto the salt flats and die looking. It is the first sun's dawn. As warmth covers Juresh's body, she sighs in relief. The night is always so cold. Iskri finds worked stone. Her barks draw Juresh back. Barsim, Juresh says, then there must be an oasis or a well, but they cannot find water. The date palms are gone, torn down and burnt. The careful irrigation system is lost. The desert has claimed back the land once held by our city. There will be no dates for Dutesh. Maybe there is still water underground. The oldest among us recall that the sarcophagus is buried and told them so before they left. In the early morning's shadows, Juresh and Iskri decipher the pattern of Barsim's fallen walls, and by the time sweat is soaking their bodies under two high suns, they stand in its center. Iskri digs. Juresh helps her, on hands and knees, sweeping aside the sand until they reveal a door leading down. Its jewels and bronze decorations are gone. Nauseated, Juresh pushes the stone door completely off the hole. Iskri, who sees better in the dim, leads the way down the cool stone steps. The temperature is a relief. They smell damp and feel renewed hope for a well. And there it is, in the middle of the subterranean road. There is no bucket. Juresh unhooks the bucket she carries on her back and lowers it on some of her best rope until it strikes liquid. The water is perfectly, beautifully pure. She sets the bucket on the floor so that she and Iskri can both drink. When they and their leather bags are full, they walk on. There is enough light for Juresh to see that the wall's decorations are also gone, prized off. Juresh wants hope. She wants it like fine food and perfume and a house with windows of stained glass. It is a thing she knows that others possess and think nothing of, while she only has an emptiness that wants to hold it. At the end of a long corridor, she and Iskri step into a small chamber. The pedestal is swirled with blue like a tail and engraved with lines of letters declaring in both scripts, Here is the final sleeping place of Nashir and Ari, who taught us all to be strong. That the pedestal is bare of its green sarcophagus and sacred bodies doesn't surprise her. Our enemies say that our stories are all lies, that we were never born each time the sun's paths crossed. We never were, 
that we were just women who went mad, who raped men to get their daughters, killed sons out of the womb, who tamed foxes with meat and bestial sex. They say we never lived in those cities they filled with locks and guns and foxless people. This creek whines as if wounded. Why have you taken them if you think we're worthless? Jerish shouts to the empty chamber. Why can't you just leave us alone? She falls to her knees, sobbing. You've won. You've already won. Why can't you stop stealing from us? When we later hear this tale, we will keen for their pain and wish we were there to press against them and stroke their fur and hair. We only want to honor them, Juresh cries. We want to bury them in a place far from our enemies, where they'll be safe and we can always return to make offerings. She lies on the floor, too tired to consider walking. This licks her cheeks and barks. It's not yet time to give up. We don't know where they've been taken, Juresh says. Discree barks and barks, reminding Juresh that yes, they do. She and Juresh are considered brave for more than their willingness to stand and fight while their maimed and younger and more fearful sisters flee in attack. They were once captured and taken to an enemy town, a place where our people die as easily as cacti under a blade. In their cell, as they planned an escape, they overheard the guards talking. One, a woman, said that she hadn't even believed the foxfuckers to be real until she took her current job. She had thought the exhibits in the Museum of Ka were hoaxes, like the skeletons of dog-headed men from the far north. Iskri and Juresh happily killed all the guards several hours later. Now they give thanks for being slowly, tediously taught the enemy's language as children. If they collect our artifacts in Ka, Juresh says to Iskri, and the words taste foul as suns turned meat, then the bodies of Nashir and Ari will be the museum's finest display. Iskri barks agreement. The concept of museums is strange to them, even after seeing one of the enemy's towns. A life under roofs, in a house that is safe, full of children, full of food and copper pots that bubble over with meat and spices. They dream of such things. They feasted on the bowls of plain rice in that cell, ignoring the guards when they laughed, when they asked if Juresh would fuck her fox and could they watch. Ka is even further away than that town, but it was once one of our cities, so it is on Juresh's map. Iskri barks and Juresh nods, determined. We will not fail our mission. At dusk we'll begin walking west. They sleep near the base of the steps to the subterranean part of the city until they sense the darkening of the day, wake, drink further from the well, and depart. They cross the western desert, and it tries like the dramic of legend to kill them. The land is truly plantless, the water scarce, the sun unrelenting, though they find deep cracks in the ground and curl in them during the day, pressed to the earth in a desperate sleeping search for shadows. They sleep nose to nose. Juresh has liked waking with hers wet since early childhood. They pine for Dutash and Tony. Sometimes, when they are tired, they lie under the stars, Iskri on Juresh's chest, barking a rhythm in time to Juresh's fingers, drumming on the hard ground. They sit on a stony ridge where agari flowers grow and watch the city of Ka. Its old walls are tiled in emerald. Its old roofs gleam silver. Our walls. Most of the city is newly built of sand brick, full of so many people. 
the squeak can already smell their food and her gut cramps in longing. Numerous times she and Jeresh have leaped into hiding as merchants leave the city on their way to another of the enemy's cities. In this place, the fertile land is riddled with old rock formations that make easy hiding places. You have to hide, Jeresh says to Iskri. Iskri growls. You have to. I can pretend to be one of them, poor and wild-haired, and they'll kick me a little, but they'll let me in. I can steal their clothes, even, and find a stream to wash in and bind up my hair, and they might let me ride into the museum. If I walk in with a fox... Iskri snaps her teeth. Jeresh buries her face in her hands, moaning softly. In truth, she cannot bear the thought of separation from Iskri. She remembers that she has seen women and men carrying large woven baskets of goods. I have a plan. It is a long wait. For this, Juresh convinces Iskri to stay hidden. Juresh, too, is out of sight among the rocks, among badly scratched, defaced stories of how we raise our sons born young, until finally the wait is over. A woman approaches with corn poking from the top of her basket. Looking at the quality of her jacket, its colors and patterns so fine that Juresh thinks surely they're a figment of her imagination, Juresh assumes that she traded cloth for food in the city. But how she got the food and basket matters little. As she passes, Juresh leaps out from her hiding place and strikes her on the head with a heavy stone. The woman crumples with a groan and lies on the road twitching. Only when Juresh has dragged her into the rocks and stripped her of her fine clothes, untangled strings of beads from her beautifully combed hair, and taken her basket, does she slit the woman's throat. The blood gathers in dips in the rock, like soup in bowls. Jeresh and Iskri feast on corn and small packets of raw meat from the basket. Jeresh wants to wear the jacket, but fears someone will recognize it as belonging to the dead woman, so she only dons the dress underneath and cannot resist the belt, on which bells jangle like a continuous song. There she hangs her knife. She reluctantly unbinds her feet from their worn, tattered dark cloth and puts on the woman's boots. Her long, wild hair, she winds into a knot at the back of her head, fastened with silver pins taken from the woman's head. She removes the knife shards from her forehead and hides their small cuts with beads. She worries that she will be instantly recognized as an imposter. She uses the jacket and remaining corn as a cushion and concealment for Iskri, who gives her a long look before curling inside. You know I wouldn't do this if there was another way. Iskri licks her paws. She is unhappy, but she understands. And so Juresh, born under the crossed paths of two sons on a bed of hot sand, raised in the shells of old cities and under temporary canvas, walks into the thriving stolen city of Ka, carrying Iskri on her back. It is unimaginably big. She must keep walking. It crowds her. The voice is so loud and numerous, speaking that language not so different to her own. The colors of the clothes. Oh, the fruits, the powdered spices in pyramids, the smell of cooking meat. She drools and has to wipe and wipe her chin. Iskri buries her snout in the jacket to muffle her whimpers. I know, I know, she hears Juresh whisper. Shh. They want to leap on the vendors and steal their food. 
Juresh tries not to stare at women with big breasts, at men, at people of all ages who don't show their bones on their skin. The buildings are so tall, several times her height. There are so many children. There are no foxes. There are men. There are so many styles of clothing that her unfinished theft of an outfit is complete next to others. There are so many kinds of faces that her darker wind-scoured one is not so unusual. People look at her and her shoulders are torsion tense, and the worst they do is eye her apparent poverty with disdain, concern, wariness. She thinks, we are just a story to you, a folktale or highly questioned part of history, and you might not believe me if I said I've walked weeks in the desert to reach here, and I'll steal our saint's bones back or die trying. Even though she has seen some of this before, in the enemy's town, it is too much, too different, and she is barely across the market at the gates when she wants to run back into the desert and sit under the sky's horizon-wide stretch with the rocks and the agari flowers growing like little banquets. She clenches her fists on the straps of her basket and walks on, up a major street, towards the distant roofs that sparkle in the sun's light. When she walks in the remains of our old city, she must fight the urge to cry, to shout, and rail against the theft of these walls. It's all so wrong, so full of intruders, fists clenching even tighter. Juresh follows the winding pattern of the streets, but cannot find the museum. Increasingly uncomfortable, under clothes and corn, Iskri turns and turns. She hears Juresh begin talking in that ugly language. She imagines a whole city full of foxless people and nearly keens aloud for Towney. I'm looking for the museum, Juresh says to a vendor who displays small, intricately detailed statues carved of bone on a bright red mat. It draws her attention even as she tries to carry out a conversation. Bone and blood, and under it, dusty stones. Simultaneously familiar and wrong, a keen bundles in her throat like fabric. Juresh hopes the woman thinks her accent only distant strange. Which one? Um. Iskri circles again. Juresh wishes that she could whisper apologies. What a fine city this is, with so many museums like gemstones on a necklace. The one with the desert people in it? The women and foxes? She doesn't know their non-derogatory terms for us. Sorry, the woman says, smiling. But I don't actually know where that one is. You'll have to ask someone else. Oh, thanks. Juresh cannot smile back and stalks off to find someone who cares enough about our people to know where our saints are kept. A man in a brilliant blue tunic overhears her question to another woman. I know where it is, he says with a smile as warm as tea. He has hair on his chin. He is tall and broad, like a wall, and his trousers subtly bulge. It's like talking to an inscription on Barsim's subterranean walls. Even as more words pass between them, she can't imagine that she is doing this. Do you want me to show you? Yes. Juresh follows the man through the winding streets, with the walls only sporadically flashing green in the sunlight. They have faded in the seventy years since Ka was taken, and many of the tiles have been removed. She wonders how far away these people have taken our city. How many distant men and women admire their tile of green, 
perhaps scratched with a word or a cutter's careless tool, with no idea who gathered the emerald from the desert and turned it into a home. What's your interest in the foxwomen? Her guide asks. She glares at his back. Their saints are here, in a sarcophagus. Ah, the sarcophagus. It's the museum's greatest artifact, a perfect example of traditional burial practices and the veneration of important figures. It's been stolen from its proper place, she says the first thing that falls off her tongue, just to stop him from hearing Iskri's growls. There are some who argue that, but I believe this would have been otherwise lost. It's important to retain such artifacts, but I'm the curator's son, so of course I'm biased. His smile is warm again. Juresh imagines cutting off his lips and feeding them to him. Iskri thinks more simply of his throat. They pass through an archway of tarnished silver, embossed with a story that Juresh yearns to stop and read. Inside the museum is cool, like the underground passages in Barsim. Barely anyone is visiting. Do you want a tour? The man, Tulan, says. Yes, but I want to see the sarcophagus first. Please. She belatedly remembers being told that a brusque attitude is rude to these people, so richly burdened with the time to adorn their words as prettily as their clothes. All right. Yet again, that smile. So Toulon leads her past a collection of minor objects of our people, some that she doesn't even recognize. Coins, cloth, crafts, knives, presented alongside paintings and sketches of our cities in their various states, occupied or ruined or remembered. There's a small story stone. Juresh runs her fingers over it, tracing words that don't belong in this cool, plain-walled room with a smiling man in blue. There's a tale, and Juresh wretches at the thought of these people cutting apart a sister for their wall. And here it is, Toulon says with a flourish, oblivious to her hatred. I'm awed by it every time. The sarcophagus stands on a pedestal in the middle of a wider room at the end of the corridor. Another man stands on guard, so large that Juresh could fit herself three times into him. A woman and a child browse the items on the nearest wall. It is beautiful. It catches Juresh, so bright a green and covered in the tales of Nashir and Ari, carved in the shapes of stone stories and tale stories. Its lid is half off. She steps forward. Inside, she could reach out and touch them, lie the mummified remains of Nashir and Ari. Juresh turns and draws her knife, fast as a dust storm, and slashes Tulan so deep across his stomach that his guts fall over his tunic before he can move his hands to the wound. Jump up! Iskri struggles free of the basket's contents. The giant moves quicker than Juresh expected. The woman and child scream. Juresh throws her knife and the giant falls, crashing, and she darts forward to retrieve her knife as Iskri leaps from the basket, growling, teeth bared. Jump up! The woman is sobbing, begging, Please, please, don't hurt my boy, please! Don't stop me! I won't! We won't! Oh! Her next words are lost in her sobs. The boy hides his face in her clothes. Juresh holds her knife between her teeth and reaches into the sarcophagus. Our saints are stiff, brittle. Shouts, heavy feet, more guards. Iskri waits for them at the room's entrance. Cursing, Juresh puts the remains of Ari whole into her basket. She needs her hands to fight. She cannot carry Nashir, so she snaps Nashir into pieces. I hate them. I hate them. She hisses with tears gathering in her eyes like dew. 
Saints should not be treated this way. Iskri barks at the six approaching men. Stop! Stop! Voices like rocks falling. The pieces of Nashir fit into her basket, and she gets the beautiful jacket over them, holding them in place before the men are grabbing for her. She darts away while Iskri leaps forward, tearing at their heels through their fine boots. One man cries out and goes down. Slow and stupid and fucking thieves! Jeresh screams, knife back in her hand. Who to strike first? Soon they'll use their little guns. We won't let you take them from us! The leader of the remaining five men raises his gun and Jeresh throws her knife. They both dodge the other's weapons. The bullet shatters something behind her. I hate you! Iskri's too quick to be kicked. Jeresh reaches over her shoulder and grabs corn, throws it, confusing them, and she runs to a wall where she pulls away a knife with small emeralds embedded in its blade. Another man screams as his heel is torn open. His blood runs over Iskri's teeth and she runs at the next. The little guns are making noise. Jeresh feels one, two, three bullets strike the basket as she leaps for cover behind the pedestal. They are blocking the way into the corridor until Iskri tears at shins, breaking their attention. Jeresh runs at them, slashing with the knife. One of the men grabs her arm and yanks away the knife, growls, Hold still, little bitch! Never! She bites his hand, and he cries out, Let's go, and the others don't have time to stop her from running past. More bullets strike the basket. Something fire-hot grazes her thigh, but she keeps going. Iskri follows, heart beating fast at the sight of blood on Jeresh's leg. Jeresh shouts wordlessly with triumph, even though she knows there is a whole city to escape. Another gunshot. Agony. Iskri screams. No! And another. No! Jeresh turns and the man fires again. A bullet slams into her shoulder. She sees Iskri lying on the floor, bleeding too fast, lying in a growing pool of red like that woman's bone-covered mat. No! 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 She crumples to her knees. Tears like a flash flood. Iskri is already dead, not even a final bark. The men are reloading their guns. Soon they will kill her as they have killed Iskri. No. The basket is heavy on her shoulders, full of saints. Either she can die avenging Iskri, or she can take Nashir and Ari from this vile place. The task Iskri died trying to complete. She wants to do both. She wants to tear out every throat in this city. I will avenge you. She is quick enough to dart forward, grab Iskri's body, twitching death's last movements, and clutch her sister to her chest, and then she runs from the museum, so full of hate. The sight of a woman bleeding, weeping, holding something small and furred and dead is so strange that it is watched by hundreds. A few reach forward, as if to grab, and Jerish dodges them. She runs until she's back in the desert back among the labyrinthine rocks outside the city, far from a path this time, and there she hides, weeping. Even when her chest and throat hurt as much as the wound in her shoulder, she weeps. In Barsim, she leaves Iskri on the empty pedestal. In Barsim, almost blind with tears, unable to climb those stairs and leave Iskri, she is not quite blind enough to read a story inscribed on the wall of the saint's chamber. It sets her jagged, broken thoughts ablaze. Feed me the bones of our saints. We stare at Juresh, our skinny, blood-stained, foxless sister with bones and flaps of skin in her arms. They will kill us like they killed Iskri. Every year their weapons are stronger. Every year we are hungrier. They will kill us all and we will be completely forgotten. 
Our rocks will be scoured by the sand-heavy winds until future historians can only sigh into their notes and say that some old culture lived here. But too much is lost now to say who we were, how brave and strong we were. Jump up! She speaks our battle cry, and it is raw as a wound. Jump up! Let me tell you a story I found in Barsim. We have forgotten what we carved into stone only fifty years ago. Let me tell you about bones. Some of us old enough to remember the construction of that subterranean chamber know this story and begin to grieve, knowing that we cannot stop this. And some begin to imagine a victory. Jeresh stands with those bones in her shaking arms and says, Once, over five hundred years ago, when two more sisters were born every time the sun's paths crossed, there was fighting. We and another people competed for a great region of gold, where even the most pitiful bushes were said to shine with the brightness of it in the soil, and two of our sisters were especially honored for their skill in combat, and were agreed to be saints. Eventually they were killed in one of the bloodiest battles of all. Their lovers feared that their bodies would fall into the hands of the enemies, and so consumed them entirely, hiding in a gully. When the lovers returned to the field, they felt the weight of the suns like a heavy knife in its sheath upon their backs. They wielded it, and that is how we won the fields of gold, to build the first of our cities that was stolen in this century. We stare. Some of us know that she did not finish the story, did not say, and the destruction so horrified them that it became one of the great sins of our history. No one has ever used this power since. Fifty years ago, we still thought we might survive. We carved our history into that burial chamber and imagined writing about our victory, or our remaining cities becoming more beautiful than ever, or our tentative peace with the enemies, something that was not hunger and death in the open desert. We can wield the suns, Juresh says. I don't know what it means, exactly, but it's a weapon. It's, I think... It's an end. For whoever wields it too, Dutash whispers. Yes, Juresh cannot quite look at Dutash. The wind gusts between us all, mournfully. Will anyone come with me, Juresh says, in case, in case anyone else wants to watch Ka consumed by fire, in case anyone wants to join this vengeance. And, hidden in her words, Juresh does not want to die alone. One of our oldest sisters snarls her disagreement, and another takes up the sound. And another, womanless Kuri, jumps at them with her teeth bared. Towney and many others join her. Dutash looks away, less certain than Towney. Foxless Lazir stands up and says, I will come with you. And I. I want to. Voices young and old, human and fox, but this is not a quick argument. It will be brutal, an old sister says. You must know that. She is laughed at, as if the war has not been brutal. This is not a battle, she persists, where two sides are equal. I know that is how this entire war has been waged. I know. I understand. But you must know that are planning to join them in sin. It is not a decision to be made lightly. 
I'm going to do it, Juresh says softly. I crossed the desert alone. It took weeks. I carried these bones, and I never stopped thinking about it. I know, sister. There is nothing more she can say. We cook our dinner, comb the children's hair and fur, set up tents for the night, murmur lullabies to the single pair of babies. They are so fragile in their early months, so easily killed by the desert. And the argument goes on, too complex to be sewn into the finest enemy jacket. We touch our saints' bones, one by one, with snouts and lips. We cannot all agree. We decide to separate, permanently, and it pains us more than the fall of every city combined. Juresh consumes the bones, pounds them with one story-covered stone onto another, making a plate of a battle tale. I will make a finer tale than this, she chants. I will make a finer tale than this. She scoops handfuls of dust and pours it down her throat, and her lips are stained pale. Though she coughs and chokes, she keeps eating it, periodically licking under her fingernails and scraping the stone's incisions and scratches free of powder. She whispers, almost too quiet for anyone to hear. I didn't think it would taste so horrid. A whisper for a fox that no longer lives. She stands, still coughing, and massages her neck with one hand. We should go, she says. Gather your weapons. No tremendous change has overcome her. Have faith, she says with a sly smile that curves her lips like the word for victory. We make ready. Juresh gives the skulls of Nashir and Ari to those of us who will remain in the desert. Bury them together, she says softly, with every right we still possess, with every song. Bury them touching, as if they are just sleeping side by side. We who remain in the desert mourn as they leave. We cross the desert without any song, with the suns hot on Juresh's back. Dutash walks with us, the only sister to stop and score our stories on rocks, lingering at each one, as if she might not have to continue. Tawny's desire convinced her not to stay at the place where Juresh consumed our saints. Juresh's determination drags her, hurts her. Jump up, Juresh says as we grow nearer to the city. Jump up, jump up. She rarely speaks without repeating, only at night, as we curl together in a far smaller pile of skin and fur than we are used to, does she murmur single sentences, confused and painful, into Dutasha's hair, or Tawny's flank, or the sand cooling against her cheek. Jump up! Ka reveals itself, large in its gentle green valley. We feel the suns now. Jump up! Juresh, Dutash says, reaching forward to touch her lover's arm. Hotter than silver poured into its mold, Dutash yelps and snatches back her finger and sucks on it. The sun's heat intensifies. Juresh, Dutash says again. Juresh! Jump up! Juresh runs fox fast along the road to the city and takes the suns with her. Knives in hands, teeth bared, we yell. Jump up! Jump up! You can't forget us. 
We'll burn you from your homes. We'll set you all ablaze. We'll slide teeth and silver into the last throats. As we run toward the city, it bursts into flames, swallowing Juresh in a flare like a blink. The fire spreads quicker than a dust storm, covering the entire city in minutes. The air is full of roaring and crackling and screams. People cannot move. They're burnt to their bones. They're blackened, broken bones that crunch under our feet. The houses fall. Juresh's voice carries through the flames. You took my sister. You! See how your arteries singe off my teeth like hair. We hear her laughter. We hear her screams. We who remain in the desert hear her, whisper soft, unstoppable as the sun's light, which glows so bright in the northwest. Her fire body is pain, is power, is everything she dreamed in that long, lonely walk from Ka to Barsim with Iskri in her arms to the camp where sisters lived in fear of more deaths to bark at dawn. You will never forget us, she screams with every part of her body. We scream. We don't die. The fire licks our bodies tenderly as tongues, so that Dutash, following Towney into the emerald-walled, black-walled, wallless city heart, thinks the fox could be caressing her. Juresh! Dutash cries into the fire. Not every person in Ka is immediately consumed. In the minutes before the fire spread, some fled through the seven open gates. Some of us chase them. We laugh as the fire leaps after them, thrown like knives. Juresh roars, triumph as each one falls. And we finish whoever we find beyond the fire's reach. We jump back into the flames, cradled by our burning sister. Juresh! Dutasha's feet crunch over blackened bones, which crumble away like cheek powder in the wind. Another sister cries out, Here! Here! There are more of them! Our enemies hide in underground chambers and caves, in places where running water keeps them cool. Dutash sees them cowering and thinks, How many times have we done this, hiding in fear? Thinks some of them are too young to have ever attacked us. She doesn't want to make this decision. She cuts their throats. None of them survive. None of them will kill us. She imagines those who lived in the fields, who fled or hid when they first saw women and foxes running along the wide road into Ka, finding these unburnt bodies amid the wreckage above, and knowing how well we learnt not to show mercy. You will never forget us. You will never look at a fire without remembering Ka. You will never look at emerald or silver without remembering how it all fell into dust, and you will never, never take another of my sisters from me. As blood soaks her feet, she staggers up the rocky steps. She can't see walls through the flames. She can't see Towney. She shuts her eyes and runs. Juresh, stop! Towney climbs blackened steps into the streets, where the fire surrounds her like Dutasha's arms. Where is her sister? The fight is over. The suns are getting hotter. Towney runs and Dutash runs and there are no sounds of life, only fragmented city pieces and bones under their feet. You will remember us. Juresh's voice is fainter now. The suns are hurting Dutash, who stumbles. Sisters across the city fall. Towney, Dutash gasps. Towney, where are you? She weeps and the fire burns away every drop. She longs for the desert and her sister and a time when she cannot think of a time she wants. 
But each memory of Ka is an agony. Fire and bones and our enemy's blood running over her hands for the first time in her life. She wishes she hadn't followed Juresh. Townie! Like her sister, she falls. A murmur from the flames. They'll never forget us. Never. Never, sisters whisper and bark across the city as the fire blisters their skin. Some still have the energy to run. Some almost make it to the gates. Juresh feels her sisters in the flames and presses against them, finally afraid of her death, seeking comfort. Never. Townie, who turned away from the killing to follow her reluctant sister, reaches the place where a great arch once stood, and doors of wood and bronze. Through the flames, she sees a horizon. She sees Dutash fallen on the ground, too fire-blind to see the way out. She barks in joy. Nothing. She bites. Tao! Townie grabs onto Dutash's elbow and begins dragging her, though the fire is burning her eyes and her body. An hour after Townie drags Dutash into one of the streams, feebly running between burned, bone-covered fields, the fire dies down. Black dust remains. For months it blows through the desert, and there is no one who does not know its source. Two sisters walk with the wind at their backs, blind, lost. We find them, we who went to Ka to find the remains of our sisters, bring them slowly back to the place where we have buried Nishir and Ari. As the wind speckles our skin with black, we wait, afraid and determined, angry and grieving. And welcome back. What did the fox say? <clears throat> I want you all to thank me right now for not singing that song. Let's say instead that he said, Submissions at Podcastle are going to be closing down in a few days. March 15th. The Ides of March, people. So get your stories in quickly. We're going to be closed down for at least a couple of months. What else did the fox say? Feedback. Feedback this week is for Ann Ivy's Scry, read by Elizabeth Green Musselman. This was one of our giant episodes, a science fantasy story about a woman with the ability to scry, that is, to see into the future, who found herself abandoned by her husband and left to commit suicide, but instead decided to work for his otherworldly nemesis. Space elf. Alien? You decide. Consensus on the forum was pretty much positive, and there was a lot of interesting discussion about it. Lee Shalin said, I listen to podcasts at work to escape the mind-numbing boredom of some of my tasks. This is the first time I worked late, just because the suspense of not knowing what would become of a character was too much for me. That's how good the story is. And Varda said, Est was pretty miserably used by her husband for a number of years, and it says something if her death obedience vow today ended up being a psychologically healthier place than her marriage was. And you know what? If the sexy times were really that great, I don't think that's necessarily the worst grounds for a relationship. 
if everyone involved is happy with the arrangement. It was certainly a better option for Est than her sex-less and self-esteemed crushing marriage. It reminds me a bit of the big takeaways from Pride and Prejudice, and that while for some of us, relationships are more satisfying if they're about love, there are other perfectly valid and healthy reasons to enter a relationship. I was pleasantly surprised her future death ended up being so peaceful, and I think the setup for the scrying magic made it perfect. All in all, a very satisfying and well-told story, and it was nice company on the road for all the holiday traveling. This actually led to one of the most fascinating discussions I've seen on our forum, all about what constitutes love. You can check all that out and so much more over at forum.escapeartist.net. Get in on the conversation and let us know what you thought of this week's story. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. You can set us up with a one-time gift or a very sexy time subscription anywhere between $2 a month up to, well, pretty much as high as you want to go. Well, I made it sound even more risque, didn't it? Anyway, your money helps keep our podcast going so we can bring you the best in fantasy fiction, pay our authors, take care of our server costs, all that good stuff, week after week. Thank you so much. That was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of all of us here at PodCastle, LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week with the tale of a glass slipper and a prince less than charming. Until then, we'll all be portions for foxes. So jump up, take arms, bare teeth, and we'll see you next time. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Emma Goldman, who said, Before we can forgive one another, we have to understand one another. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.